0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of Fidelity Connects, we are joined by Fidelity Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm, to hear about the things she's looking out for in today's markets. Today, Denise takes us through the indicators investors should be paying attention to right now, including real wage growth, a potential turnaround in the housing market, and the importance of understanding the Fed's actions in relation to potential problems or risks arising in the banking sector. Denise tells host Pamela Ritchie about the substantial positive change real wage growth has experienced recently, which may indicate a more sustainable market cycle and even a reduced recession risk. She is also seeing signs of improvement in the housing market, with housing starts and sales increasing, suggesting an uptick in real GDP growth. Denise also touches on inflation, highlighting that while it remains a concern, the rate of deceleration is an important indicator to watch out for. Moderate inflation and a slow adjustment of interest rates are more manageable for consumers and the market as a whole. Overall, Denise believes the market has potential for further cyclical outperformance and is cautiously optimistic about its trajectory. This podcast was recorded on July 18, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Everything, of course, remains top of mind. There's still lots of questions about what's leadership and what's direction and what you know cycle, you're going to take us through kind of the indicators discussion, but also kind of market turns. What's a, what's a market turn versus an indicator, I guess?
2: Yeah, I mean, the indicators are
1: what are you watching
2: in the market that is predictive of forward market returns? And I think that there are two that we can talk about that are in the process of potentially turning and one in the meantime that has turned and substantially turned. And that's the first one we should talk about, which is real wage growth. Now, if you remember, that's a critical driver through the market, I'd say generally, or at times, in part because this cycle has been very different, and I always like to say it's off-cycle relative to other cycles, because 2022 was the biggest contraction in real wages we've seen without a recession, and 2020, or the pandemic, was the only recession we saw with negative, with positive, real wage growth. So if you say, well, let's just forget the R word in the recessions and say, how does the market think through the, I'm going to call it loosely, the economic cycle around real wage growth, you'll really find that the market tends to bottom in hard landings around the time real wage growth bottoms. And our cycle, this cycle, has been off-cycle in the sense that it hasn't been a true NBER-defined recession. But if you link it up to those troughs in real wage growth, it looks pretty similar to prior hard landings. So what we've seen, based on the fact that we know CPI just came in below expectations, and because we rolled off of that one month that was a you know severe um, tailwind for inflation, rolled off that one month, we're now down to CPI on a year-on-year basis, you have seen one of the sharpest real wage growth inflections in history. So going from last year, we were in steep negative real income growth to this year, right now, we are at top quartile real wage growth. So we have seen the turn that is one of the most significant factors to watch in the market.
1: Fascinating. And to watch within the market indicating that we're going where? I mean, that- that we're past the recession necessarily or what? Yes. In, in the sense that, yes, it is more likely to be
2: sustainable. So the map behind it is if you think about all the incidents going back to 1962, and I look forward over the next year in whatever quartile real wage growth is in, and I look at the incidents of what is a recession, what you'll find is where we were last year is about 6.7%. And these charts are up on my LinkedIn if anybody wants to to look there of all like the 15% of the time, most of the time is in that negative real wage growth bucket, which is double the instance of where you are in an average year. If you fast forward to where we are now with top quartile real wage growth growing around 2%, all of a sudden that incidence is not zero, but it's 1.7. So a 70% reduction in your recession risk on a forward basis based on the real wage growth we have seen and are seeing currently you know over the over the course of the last year so you can't take recession risk off the table partly because when you look through history recession risks really aren't the clear result of interest rate hikes or anything else they're usually the result of shocks and you don't see those coming but what you can say is this indicator has dramatically changed the recession risk in the market and has been much more likely with not 100% certainty to make the cycle much more durable. So it is very true that what happens next is this trend will not be sustained in part because we've seen a very substantial deceleration in CPI and likely the easy part of that is behind us. But that deceleration that does happen 80% of the time still leaves you with pretty strong real wage growth over the course of the next year. And it's the market Turning to that durability that gives you higher odds of future earnings growth that then becomes the driver of the next leg.
1: And here we sit in the middle of the earnings reporting season, figuring out exactly what is happening. Lots of financial institutions so far. But literally one to watch over the course of the next couple of weeks, this this will be. So another one, ultimately, and, and this has been a head scratcher in Canada. It's a different story in the U.S., just in terms of the way mortgages are structured. But the housing sort of, would we call them tailwinds at this point. I mean, how would we describe the housing story at this point in the U.S.?
2: You can. If you think about it just in terms of the C plus I plus G as the factors behind GDP, you know, one of the biggest contractions that we've seen of that vertical is residential investment. Down 20% over the course of the last year, which is not a surprise given what mortgage rates have done, which again is less impactful than in the U.S. than we see in other countries because of that fixed mortgage rate. But yet residential investment declined, you know, to bottom decile levels. 70% of the time, from that decline, you usually do accelerate. And what the change in housing starts and housing sales have shown you, and it's really been over the course of the last six months, is a steady improvement in that second derivative, which is not to say that housing is strong, but it is getting less weak, which is the second derivative that is most often associated with accelerating your GDP growth. And that's really important when real GDP growth is in the bottom quartile of its historic range and real GDI or real gross domestic income is actually contractionary. So this is yet another example of a headwind that has been very strong for real GDP over the course of the last year, potentially turning to a tailwind. So you say, well, what does that mean historically? And what it means is not really that surprising. Stocks tend to do better because of that corollary that real GDP growth has potentially bottomed and is turning. And what you see that more often in is multiple advancement before the earnings growth, but you tend to get both over the course of the next year, which means that not only do earnings most likely bottom and advance, but you also get multiple expansion based on that potential earnings growth. And when you look back in history, none of it's really inflationary because inflation tends to be a very lagging indicator. So this is, again, yet another thing, if you are waiting for the recession, a lot of the indicators that I look at, yes, not jobs, but a lot of the other indicators that I look at say, we're kind of in it in potentially this rolling recession way. And a lot of those indicators that are in it are turning and those turns have been important to watch for the durability and longevity of both the cyclical rotation and the upside in the
1: market, and that's so what I, I'm saying. I have not heard rolling recessionary type situation. I mean that that feels new. I don't know if we could brand you with that, but but that's so fascinating because as you say, it's been it's not been a, a clearly defined NBER recession, but there have been pieces of the story that seem to fit that you've been taking us through for you know a year at this point. It's like it's a full employment. Recession,
2: it's like a full right. So I, I think that the the pushback that I usually get to this full employment recession concept is. Well, if you didn't have deterioration in employment, then you can't have upside based on those type of cycles. But the problem associated with that is that you have had real contraction in residential investment, in housing, in ISM. You have had real contractions in these places that have been significant drivers. And most importantly, you actually hit peak to trough, a median recessionary contraction in the stock market. So if you can have a contraction in all these indicators at full employment, then I will tell you that we can likely have a recovery in these indicators at full employment as well, which includes the stock market. So, again, you can't just think of it as one sided. We actually had the way I judge it, a median recessionary peak-to-trough contraction in the stock market. So if you can have that based on one of those
1: things, then you can have a median recovery based on a full employment recovery as well. I want to go back to housing, sort of the residential story. But what is the third turn? We've got two there. Yes.
2: So we have real in some ways they're all related. Real wages, which has turned, housing, which looks to me in the process of turning, which gives a tailwind to real GDP growth. And then I'm just gonna, in some ways, we can think of these as all very, very much related. Global leading indicators are turning. Global leading indicators are turning, US leading indicators are turning. When they turn, they tend to trend. So we've seen a little uptick. And yes, stocks are part of that. In the sense that stocks are a component of LEIs, but there's a part on the other side that's deeply negative, which is the yield curve. And then there's a part in the middle, whether it be the work week or consumer confidence or housing starts, which are all of these, you know, how do I say early cycle without saying early cycle, right? Right. All of these indicators in the middle that are actually turning. And you're seeing that very consistent. So you can say, okay, let's step back. Let's put them all together in a basket, which luckily the conference board has done for us. Right. OECD has done it as well. They group them all together and they say the stuff is leading. These leading indicators have turned. We're at the bottom quartile position. What happens next? What usually happens next is earnings recover and stocks advance. And you get that based on the double tailwinds of earnings recovering and multiple appreciation. So I, I think that there is a lot set up that is still very, very constructive for the market, and that is still very pro-cyclical. So I've gotten a lot of questions around, well, we've seen cyclical outperformance now year to date. Some people call it excessive. I'd call it fairly in line with history in terms of plain vanilla cyclical rotation. And I think that there are still legs to that based on, in part, The indicators that I'm seeing that are turning, that I think that have been predictive of future cyclical outperformance, but also the fact that right now I'm not really seeing anything that is unusual relative to history. Meaning that if we look at all of the cyclical rotations that we've seen historically, we're maybe in the third inning, fourth inning. Maybe if I sort of squint, I can look at, you know, a factor being in the fifth inning. But really, we're not at any kind of unusual or anomalous cyclical rotation behavior like we were. I would call the anomalous situation that we saw that very sharp defensive rotation going in to what wasn't what didn't end up being a recession. That was three times the typical rate that you have seen going into recessions. That was a very anomalous, unusual event, and you can actually judge outcomes based on that anomalous and unusual event. Right now, nothing that I'm seeing when I look at the context or history of this cyclical rotation is unusual at all. And in fact, you're starting to
1: see these confirming trends, which gives it
2: potential durability as well.
1: So so when you say perhaps we're in second, third inning, I don't know, maybe that is looking at the valuations. Is that right? I mean, you're looking at the valuations. They haven't gone too far. They're still there's still room to go, essentially. Yes,
2: so it's looking at the performance side, to be clear. So I do think that relative valuations are very, very predictive, and you've heard me talk about that at times. So one of the questions that I get is, look, one of the problems associated with buying defense, and by defense, I mean consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, and real telecommunication services sector, or low vol, right, you can think about as a factor, is because the starting point was very expensive on relative valuation. People ask me all the time, well, the starting point is a little bit cheaper now because they've underperformed substantially. So this is where I think history can be very helpful in terms of the pattern to recognize is not that you are out of that top quartile zone, because yes, that that was much worse in terms of your average probability of outperformance, but you're not in a statistical zone where I'm cheap enough to really bet on that valuation. You're in a sort of muddy middle. So the question is, what comes next? And the answer historically is that you usually get further multiple compression when earnings recover, uh, meaning that what happens to the stocks is not that yes they're not expensive anymore, but you now are faced potentially if the signals play out the way I think that they will with a second headwind for defensive performance, and that's they are likely to lag in terms of relative earnings growth. Said differently, if earnings recover like I expect that they will. It is not often that consumer staples, healthcare utilities or telecommunication services out-earn the overall S&P 500 because of their lack of economic sensitivity. So, yes, you got rid of the severe headwind of relative valuation, but now you are facing another severe headwind. We'll see what happens over the course of the next year. If you recall, last February, we were talking about that all of these indicators being flipped for defense, which was the fact that relative earnings had troughed, relative earnings growth had troughed, and the stocks were cheap. I suspect we will get back there again, but we are a ways to go on that. And we could even be a year out for that. That's what I want to wait for. That's what I want to watch for. But We're not there yet.
1: So let's see, this is, this is how we can demonstrate that inflation and the Fed seems to be not the top story anymore, because I'm just going to ask you about it now. And here we are halfway through. Let's let's go to what happens in July, what does or doesn't happen in September and November, what, what you see. We've got the real wage growth story, and that is a big piece of the inflation story, of course. But people are less worried about this. There seems to be maybe an exhaustion. Yes, I think that that's right. I mean, I think consumers still worry
2: about it well, because as much as prices have come down in terms of growth rate they are still 3% higher than they were a year ago which was high right so i don't i don't think that this feels good but i think that the feeling of less bad is what you're looking at in terms of the market so i will say like this has been a big driver towards real wages if you remember like inflation by itself is not predictive the wages themselves are not predictive of the stock market. The best way is to think about the interlay of the two of them, which is predictive to the stock market. So inflation has been a piece of that, meaning that it decelerated faster than real wage then wage growth decelerated, and that's been the key. The question is, will is that all, and what is likely to happen from here? And I think that the easy deceleration in inflation is likely over. Some of this is just based on the easy year-on-year comps, which we've now rolled off on. So a lot of people ask me, well, now that we're at three percent, you know, maybe it's going to accelerate from here based on the fact that the year on year comparisons are, you know, are going to get harder over time. And I think that what people miss is it's not that inflation acceleration and deceleration is always important. It's that it's very important when it's top decile or top quartile and accelerating or top quartile and decelerating. and top quartile and accelerating was 2022 top quartile and decelerating has been 2023 once you gravitate towards this we're out of the top quartile and it might be accelerating it might be decelerating you start to get to this the same hit rates for the market when you look statistically and that's especially true when you start to get mixed. News like you could see the overall CPI accelerate slightly, but you could still see core CPI decelerate slightly because that lag in the shelter can come. So, all of a sudden, you've drifted from this scenario of you can even just look back historically and look at the odds like 40% odds of the market advancing when you're top quartile and accelerating, and then 85 to 90% odds when you're top quartile and decelerating, and then you're like at 75 to 80% odds all other times, meaning that inflation is not the driver. So as much as we are going to focus on the fact that, yes, there will be some components to inflation that accelerate here, and I do hope that they do in a lot of ways, because I'm one of those people who thinks that deflation is actually a bigger risk than inflation, especially when your run rate is 3%. So I think that there are going to be a lot of people arguing about that trajectory, and what I'm going to tell you is I think it matters less. Yeah, just the fact that we're out of that top quartile zone, I think that you can say, unless you really believe that we are going to go back to that top quartile zone and accelerate from there, and right now I'm not seeing anything in the annualized run rates of that data to suggest that that's true, Might change in the future, but right now I'm not seeing anything that suggests that that's true, I think that that's much less a factor to watch going forward.
1: I mean can you dig into the whole idea which you've always said that the deflation is is a bigger issue and for a long time that was the case right i mean we were practically paying to put money into various government bonds around the world for 20 years practically so it was it was a real risk for a long long time dig into the growth for us that that some inflation will bring and you know i guess what we need out of it like what what is the sweet spot in there
2: yes i think you can't forget that a nominal contraction is dramatically different on the way businesses react to a real contraction. Meaning if your top line sales fall, that's very different from saying my cost of goods sold went up more than my top line growth. Therefore, we have less income than, you know, less, less of a growth rate than last year. That's a very different mathematical construct. And in some ways we've seen that It's a lot easier. Inflation is, you know, historically speaking, a lot easier to get out of, in the sense that prices tend to cure higher prices. Central banks tend to react. Even fiscal policy tends to react. Yes, it might be a little bit stickier, but if you flip it to the side of deflation, you know, we were in that debt deflation area for, you know, in some ways a decade. Maybe CPI wasn't declining, but Japan has shown that it's much harder to get out of that scenario uh, than the alternative scenario. And you don't have to go far. I mean, you just look in history and say, if I had perfect foresight and I knew prices were going to contract next year, that's usually a negative return for the market. So that tells you that it's bad, um, historically speaking. And in some ways, like depending on your time horizon, one year, three year or five year, you can actually find inflation being a little bit more positive for the market. And it's because of that hit on businesses where an overall decline in your actual income is much, much different than a decline in the growth rate of that income. I so that's, yeah. I, it's something to keep in mind because the, the more we see the CPI start to look like the last decade, the more the next down leg of whatever cycle this is could end up as more deflationary than inflationary. And I do want to keep an open mind yeah. because like I said, I don't, I don't think we're there yet in the sense that, you know, we just saw the inflection in real wage growth, which does tend to, to be sustainable and durable, but at the same time, cycles don't last forever either. What does that next cycle look like in terms of the down bike? If it's more deflationary than inflationary, I think we've actually got
1: more problems than less. Tell us what, to what, I mean, that that sort of brings about these ideas of normalization. We're getting back to something that is, you know, across various areas of the market, things look more normal, perhaps. Is there an element that some of the Fed moves have actually fixed up or improved mortgage markets in a way, like we've sort of cleared through some of the issues that were in there and, and maybe adapted adapted. I think that the consumer adapts to higher rates. I think that there's certainly some
2: of that, especially so if you have income growth, nominal income growth, even more especially so if you have real income growth, right? So they're related. You can adapt to the extent that you are employed and your real wages are growing. That makes it pretty easy to adapt. I think it's very difficult to adapt if more and more people are losing their job and real income growth is negative. So, where we are today is a very adaptable consumer. Now, whether or not that that's sustainable, like I said, from from a historical perspective, it does look likely to be, to sustain itself. And that is like an easy way to say or think about how you grow into higher rates and in some ways higher inflation as well, is that the consumer can adapt under the surface because of that growth. And that's why the trajectory of things like inflation and rates often matter more than the level. Because if we said, you know, and this was, let's just say, two years ago, if you told me that you were going to go to 5% rates or 7% mortgage rates overnight, that's a bigger deal than if I was going to go over the course of seven years when my income growth. So the slower the movements in those rates and inflation, the more the consumer. Underneath the curve. And that's why people are like, well, the Fed's still going to hike, but now they're going to go every other meeting. But that's the difference, right? The every other meeting, you can adapt as that goes versus the 75 eclipse and a dangerous, you know, rumor of an intra meeting hike. Those things you can't adapt to because it's not long enough in terms of growing into. So I, I do think we're in a much better situation. And I think you can argue based on the inflation data that I look at, at least from the diffusion index, from the run rate index, is that the Fed is more likely done than not, which does not say that it precludes one or two more hikes. I mean, we're likely to see one more, maybe two more. But the why is very important to Fed hikes being predictive of the market. And I think that that's important to remember, too, because I often sort of throw out like in quick fashion how interest rates mean statistically. And, you know, oftentimes when you go back through history, you'd rather the Fed be hiking than than cutting. And right. it's because that more oftentimes when the Fed is hiking, the economy is growing, meaning that you can actually take the rate hike. But that's implicit in saying it's why the Fed is doing what it's doing that is the most important to the market. If you're hiking, because inflation is accelerating at such a pace and you're behind the curve and real income growth is negative, well, that's negative to the market. But if you are hiking because you're not really sure if you're in restrictive territory because the economy is kind of growing faster than you thought, well, then that's not so bad for the market. So that's another sort of long-winded way of saying, you know, it's not always predictive. And the why really matters. So to the extent that the Fed ends up cutting rates at some point because inflation comes in lower than expectations, well, that's actually a positive. But to the extent that we get into a situation where we have yet another banking crisis and it's more severe and the Fed's cutting rates, well, that's not positive and that's not supportive either of equities.
1: So that's so exactly what I wanted to ask you. I, I, just to, to kind of close, well, we have a couple of minutes, but since March, we've seen... Okay, tech stocks, the Magnificent Seventh, they've been making their moves since January. But since March, and it looked like a line was drawn under the banking, uh, I don't know what we call it, concerns, crisis, whatever we want to call it. It's To what extent does that line hold? I mean, I guess that's sort of my question to you. Like, do you think that the Fed, which jumped in very quickly to make sure that depositors were going to be okay and had plans, that is accommodative, ultimately, to to parts of the market. Do, do you expect to sort of see that continue because it has to? They're worried about another biking, banking concern? Yeah. And well, in some ways, you can think about
2: that, them showing their hand in the sense that what did what have we heard from the Fed? We have heard hey, regardless of what we think about the economy, we're going to stay in restrictive territory and we're not going to be supportive of the stock market in terms of interest rate cuts or liquidity or anything else. So you guys get that out of your heads, right? That's sort of been the message, which is this strong forward guidance, right? Rates are going to stay higher for longer. Yet when faced with a crisis, we actually went back to expanding the balance sheet, not contracting the balance sheet, right? Which was the math of it to support the banking system. So at the end of the day, when there was a real issue, the Fed was not really restrictive, it was quite accommodative. So I do think that the market is interpreting that, maybe correctly so, in the sense that if we actually get into another solvency issue, the Fed will act as the lender of last resort, as they should, given it's their job, despite the fact that they are saying we will likely stay higher for longer. So those two things can actually hang in parallel because we just went through a situation it did. So you can be restrictive on rates, but accommodated for liquidity quite at the same time, which at the end of the day is supportive to equities. That's All that said, I have no idea whether or not that the crisis is going to get worse or better in the future. What you can see historically and what I always tell portfolio managers, not every banking crisis is systemic. In fact, most are not. 2009 was the exception, not the rule. So I think that that's what we just learned from this crisis, is that there was that really gut reaction, which is, okay, bank lending is going to dry up in a sudden stop and a sudden contraction, because that's what we saw in 2009. But when you look back historically, when Continental Illinois went under in 1984, when you've seen the S&L crisis sort of dragged out over, you know, four years, you've seen other banking issues not be caught, solved in quite the same way to the market. So it doesn't always mean that I don't know if we're gonna have you know, a banking crisis that might be more or less severe. I think the question is, remember when. I always say like, I don't analyze what things will go bump in the night and put probabilities based on them and then back into a you know forward estimate of what the S&P will do based on that, partly because I have no idea when those things will happen or what those probabilities are. So what I focus on as an investor is where is the market discounting any of those risks? Because if those bump in the night things don't turn out to actually go bump, then that's your upside risk versus if they do is your downside risk. I can compare the two as an equity market investor and determine risk reward versus typical. So that's where I concentrate. And what you've seen historically is that a lot of those banking issues can be dragged out over time. And as soon as you get that time element in to bring it sort of full circle, you can grow into that as well.
1: I love this. Okay, thank you for solving a few pieces of the world for us. That was That's fascinating, totally fascinating, because there is sort of this circling discussion of whether there's any more of that. But wonderful to get your views. Denise Chisholm, thank you for joining us on Fidelity Connects. Always great to be here, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.